We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Now, at the (coughs) resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error? because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush and how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, thank you that you are in this room this morning. That in watching this baptism, we are reminded that you are a God who is active, that you are a God who is at work, that you are a God who is pursuing us at every moment. And I pray that you would give all of us eyes to see that right now, that as we come to your word, that you would help us to see that you have not remained silent, you are not detached, you are not distant, but you have spoken, and you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and through your Word, and I pray that you would come and make this alive to us right now by your Spirit. God, we need to hear from you. So many of us in this room today, we come and life is just overwhelming us. We feel like we are just trying to hold it together. Some of us come with incredible sorrow and loss this morning. And we need a ray of hope. And God, some of us come so numb and distracted in life that we need you to break in. Would you do this? Would you meet us wherever we are in this room this morning, whether we are 
convinced or unconvinced or somewhere in between, come and speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, hope to get to meet you after the service. If I haven't met you yet, hopefully you'll join us for the newcomer lunch. Uh, we have been working our way through a series in the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to what is a rather strange passage in the Bible. I heard some of you kind of making some, some funny sounds as you were hearing this story read. And uh, as I was studying for this passage this week, it reminded me of... Uh, something my young daughter uh, said to my wife recently. She, she asked her, she said, Mom, if there, was an, if there was a zombie apocalypse and you had to choose for only one of your parents to survive, which one would you choose? And my wife said, you know, that's, that's a really hard question. Um, I don't know, you know, wh- how about you? Which one would you choose? <laughs> And if you're a dad, you know where this is going. This is not, I was so set up in this moment. My daughter said, well, I would choose you, Mom. And my, my, my wife told me this. I thought, you know, why would you tell me this? <laughs> uh, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to feel about this? And there are parts of the Bible that when you read them, elicit the same sort of response. What in the world, what in the world are we supposed to do with a passage like this? You know, Jesus gets into this argument with these religious leaders, and they give him this very bizarre case study about a woman with seven husbands who all die, and then Jesus says this crazy thing in this passage that there there will be no marriage in heaven. At first glance, it is so strange, and you're like, "What, what do we do with this? But my goodness, there is so much good news in this passage. There is so much good news in this passage. This passage is about heaven. That's what it's about. It's about eternity. And I want to ask you a question this morning. How often do you think about heaven? How often do you give thought to eternity? See, the reality is is that we live in a world that is filled with distractions. Endless distractions, endless scrolling, endless streaming, endless to-do lists. Most of us think about everything but heaven. Uh, Richard Baxter, who was a pastor in the 17th century, he said, he said that Christians should think about heaven for at least 30 minutes every day. And as compelling as that sounds, it's also a little problematic because Heaven is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. And I don't just mean by people who aren't Christians. I mean by Christians. We do not understand heaven and eternity the way that the Bible talks about it. See, it's one thing to think about heaven. It's another thing to think about it rightly. It's another thing to think about it in the way that Jesus talks about it in this passage. And that's what I want to do together this morning. You came on a good morning. We're talking about eternity this morning. We are talking about heaven this morning. And this passage tells us three things about this view of eternity. It's essential, it's transformational, and it's beautiful. That's what I want to look at this morning. Jesus gives us a view of eternity that is essential. It's transformational. 
and it's beautiful. So first, it's essential. Okay, in verses 19 through 23, the Sadducees come to Jesus with this crazy story. They say, Jesus, imagine there's this woman who's married. And she and her husband have no kids. And then her husband dies. And so she marries his younger brother. But then he dies. And so then she marries his, the other brother. And on and on and on it goes. All the way through seven brothers. And then she dies. And then they ask Jesus this question. Tell us, Jesus, whose wife will she be in eternity? I think I saw this on the Dr. Phil show once. Something like this. <laughs> this, if this sounds like an absurd question or an absurd situation, it is supposed to be. It is supposed to be. Now, there are two things you need to know about the Pharisees. Here's the first. The Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that all of the Old Testament was the inspired word of God. The Sadducees believed that only the first five books of the Bible were the inspired word of God, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so what they're doing in this kind of ridiculous case study is they're actually, they're actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says that if a woman is married and she has no children and her husband dies, then the brother of her dead husband is to marry her and take her in. And this was actually a merciful provision in the Old Testament. Because in an ancient patriarchal world, if you were a widow, you were incredibly vulnerable. And so what the Old Testament is doing is creating this merciful provision uh, to protect women. Now here's the second thing you need to know about the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Verse 18 actually says that explicitly. They believed, here's what they believed. They believed that this life is all there is. Uh, they believed that, um, that when you die, it's just game over. The, the Sadducees thought that the idea of eternity and heaven and the afterlife was absurd. And so they come to Jesus with this absurd case study to show to him how absurd it is to believe in the resurrection. And this is like many secular people today. This may be you in this room. You may think, you know what? All of this talk about heaven is just wishful thinking. It's just a fairy tale. It's not true. And it's absurd and ridiculous to believe that it is. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds in verse 24. He tells them that they are in error. And that word error literally means lost or blind. Jesus says, you don't believe in the resurrection? You're lost. You're blind. You're, you're living in the dark. And you see, here's, here's the first point, actually. If you believe this life is all there is, if there is no heaven, if there is no eternity, if there is no world to come, if you just die and it is game over, then if you have any intellectual honesty, you will feel like you are living in the dark. You will feel lost. 
you will feel like life is meaningless and empty. I did college ministry for a number of years at Cal, actually, before John Kong. John Kong, he's got some strong drip. I mean, brother's got a sweater vest on and a tie, trying to make me look bad. But uh, I did college ministry for 11 years. And I will never forget, I'd been meeting with this particular student who was an atheist. And he didn't grow up in any sort of religious home. And he was exploring the claims of Jesus for the very first time. And I'll never forget him saying to me, he said, I don't believe in God. He said, I believe that I came from nothing. And I believe that when I die, I will go to nothing. And then he said this, but in order to not spend my life in despair, I have to somehow convince myself that my life isn't nothing. That it's not meaningless. And then he said to me, he said, it's like I'm playing a game to convince myself of this every day. And he said, I think this is why I struggle with depression so much. Now that is so honest. And that is so heavy. But it is so true. I mean, if your origin has no significance, if we are just random products of the universe, and if our eternity has no significance, then how can you say that the time in between those two things has any significance? You might think that it is absurd to believe in eternity, but it's actually even more absurd to say that life can have meaning if eternity doesn't exist. Do you remember uh, the Disney movie, The Lion King? I'm going to give some things away this morning. You've had enough time to see this movie by now. Sorry, this is on you. Uh, the opening scene of that movie, do you remember, you remember the opening scene of that movie where King Mufasa standing on top of the cliff and all the animals are down below him? And he holds up uh, baby Simba, who's the future king, and he hands, he hands Simba to that creepy-looking monkey creature. Remember him with the blue face and, like, the long white beard? And, and then, uh, and then he, he holds Simba up, and Elton John's song, The Circle of Life, like crescendos in this moment. And all of the animals are like cheering. They made this moment, uh, like all of us, we got goosebumps, right, in that scene. Because they made it look like this incredibly beautiful moment, this incredibly uplifting moment about how meaningful and wonderful life is. But if you think about it, this is a terribly depressing moment. Because who these animals are cheering for is this lion who's at the top of the food chain, and he is going to eat all of them. (laughs) And it's actually very sad if you think about it. And you see, the circle of life, that song, actually, it's, it's all about how you're born, and you die, and the world goes on. Uh, In fact, uh, Mufasa, in his first lecture to Simba, he says this, when we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and so we are all connected in the great circle of life. What is uplifting about this? What is uplifting about this? If you were all honest, you'll realize that belief in life after death, friends, it is essential. It is an absolute necessity for life to have any sense of meaning and purpose and significance. It's the only thing that will keep you from feeling like you are lost and living in the dark. 
Despair is the only intellectually credible response if eternity does not exist. But Christianity says that it does. And therefore your life can be infused with meaning and hope. And I want to say this this morning because some of you in this room, you're in a dark place. And you are wondering if life is worth living There's part of you that thinks that if you cease to exist, no one would notice. And I want you to hear me say this this morning. That God sees you. And God notices you. And God wants to infuse your life with his hope and his purposes and his significance. Now that is the first point. It is a view of eternity that is absolutely essential. Here's the second one. It's a view of eternity that is transformational. And it is transformational in two ways. First, Jesus points us to eternity, to an eternity that is a transformed world. Look at verse 25. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. This is a radical teaching. Some of you have never heard this before. You didn't know this was in the Bible. Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven. Uh, my wife is Katie. In heaven, Katie will not be my wife. And I will not be her husband. And, and if you're married, the same is true for you. And for some of you, this makes you very sad. And for others of you, this makes you very happy, which is a whole other... <laughs> A whole other sermon for a whole other day. But there is, there is something even more, there is something even more going on here in what Jesus is saying, okay? Let, let's, let's press through this, this kind of crazy, strange teaching. It is something even more that's going on here because the Sadducees, they get, think about this, they gave Jesus a case study that assumed eternity would just be a continuation of this world. See, they said, oh, Jesus, you know, she was married to these men. So so they're assuming she's going to be married to one of them in eternity. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Eternity is not just a continuation of this world. It is a whole other world altogether. It is not this world continued. It is this world transformed. And here we need to go outside of our passage just a little bit to understand what Jesus is saying. In Revelation chapter 21, which is where we get one of the clearest pictures of eternity, in Revelation chapter 21, John gets a vision of heaven, and that vision is this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. All right, let's be honest. Typically... When we think of heaven, we think, number one, we think of some ethereal place with clouds and angels and disembodied souls just sort of floating around. And number two, we think heaven is a place that we go up to. You see, but in John, in Revelation chapter 21, John gets a vision of heaven that says he doesn't see people going up to heaven. No, he sees heaven coming down to us. And it is not some sort of ethereal place that is disconnected from a material earth. Listen to this. He doesn't even call it heaven. He calls it a new earth. 
a new heaven and a new earth. And then he writes this. He says, he who is seated on the throne, that means God, said, I am making all things new. At the end of time, God is not going to say, I am making all new things. No, God says, I am making all things new. Do you know what this is saying? It is saying that eternity is not us going up to some ethereal, immaterial existence, but it is God coming down into this world at the end of history and renewing it and healing it and making all things right again. God is not going to start over with a different world. He is going to restore this one. But it is going to be such an incredible restoration that it won't simply feel like a continuation. It's going to feel like a transformation. There is this glorious future that is coming. And it is a world where there is no more poverty. People will not be sleeping in tents anymore under bridges. And there's no more hunger. And there's no more violence. And there's no more evil. And there's no more injustice. And there is no more cancer. And there is no more depression. And there is no more fear. And there's no more tears. And there is no more death. And there's no more divorce. There'll be no more funerals. No more caskets. And it is going to be a world that is filled with mountains. It's so material. It's so earthy. It will be filled with mountains and sunsets and oceans and beauty and joy and goodness and beauty and food and drink and laughter. And you see, there is something deep inside of us that says, I want that world. And you know why? It's because we were made for that world. Every single one of us. We have a memory trace. There is something in us that says, yes, that is the world that I was made for. And you see, when you get a vision of this transformed world in the future, you know what it does? It leads to a transformed life in the present. And that is the second way that this view of eternity is transformational. It changes everything about how you live right here and right now. Uh, one, of the, one other detail about, that you need to know about the Sadducees is that they were very wealthy, actually. They were part of the aristocracy. And they were known as lovers of pleasure. Uh, there is a quote from around the time of Jesus that it just encapsulates the worldview of the Sadducees, and here it is. It says, no one has been known to return from Hades, which is the grave, because we were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we have never been. See, no resurrection. And when it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. Our name will be forgotten in time, and no one will remember our works. See, very honest about your only option is despair if there's no resurrection. There is no return from our death because it is sealed up and no one turns back. Now listen to the implications of this worldview. Come, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist 
and make use of the creation to the full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes and let no flower of spring pass by us. Let none of us fail to share in our revelry. Everywhere let us leave signs of enjoyment because this is our portion. Does that sound familiar? That is the world we are swimming in. It is a world that says, if there is no God, if there is no eternity, if there is no future to come, then the best thing you can do right now is enjoy the few days that you have left. Get as much as you can. Spend as much as you can. Get as much pleasure as you can, as much comfort as you can. Buy the best stuff that you can. Take the best vacations that you can. And you see, this is how the Sadducees lived, and it is how many of us live today. But I want to compare this to the people that Jesus mentions at the very end of this passage. Look at verse 26. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus is actually quoting from, John, from Exodus chapter 3 here, but here's the question that I want to ask. Why does Jesus choose these three people? Why does he say, I am the God of Abraham? I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. You know, in the Bible, God is the God of countless people. Like, why didn't he say, I am the God of Mary? I am the God of, of David. I am the God of, of Peter or Paul. Why does he choose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Hebrews chapter 11 talks about each of them. It talks about how they lived a life of faith, a life of following God, a life of putting their hope in God, a life of trusting God, a life of actually giving things up for God. And then it says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For, listen to this, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's the eternal city we just read about in Revelation chapter 21. The Sadducees did not believe in the world to come, and it changed nothing about their life right now. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did, and it changed everything about their lives. And you see, if you are a follower of Jesus, it will do the same for you. If you believe that this life is not all there is, that there is a transformed world that is coming in the future, then it will lead to a transformed life in the present. And it will have drastic effects on how you live today. It will change so much. When the new heavens and the new earth, this vision of the future that the Bible gives to us, it says it is coming. Bank your lives on it. 
When that begins to captivate your imagination, oh my goodness, friends, it changes everything. It'll give you a whole new value system about what matters and doesn't matter in life. It will change how you spend your money. It will change how much of your money you're able to give away. It will change how you love your neighbor and how you serve the city and how you care for the poor. And it will change, listen, if you're a parent, if you were a parent, it will totally reshape everything that you want for your children. It'll change everything that you want in terms of for them in life. It will reshape your ambitions and your goals. It will change what you worry about and what you don't worry about what you obsess over and what you, what you don't obsess over, what is just able to roll off your back, you will not live as though this life is all there is. And you will be strange to people around you. You will be very peculiar. And I want to ask you this morning, if you are a Christian, is that happening in your life? Would outsiders look at your life and would they see anything different about you? Would there be any parts of your life that would cause someone to do a double take? To look at you and say, why in the world, why in the world would you live like this? Why would you care so much? Why would you serve so much? Why would you give so much? Why would you love so much? Why would you forgive so much? And of course the question is, is what is ever going to get us to live this way. Because it goes, listen, it goes everything, it goes against everything that our culture says, but it goes against everything that our hearts say. Let me be the first one to admit, there is a big Sadducee inside of me. There is a big part of me that wants to live for pleasure now, for comfort now, for joy now. And what's going to change me? And what's going to change you? And the answer is the last thing that Jesus tells us in this passage about eternity. That it's not just essential, it's not just transformational, but it's beautiful. Some of you, you're still hung up on this whole marriage in heaven thing. That's what you've been thinking about ever since I said it. I know it. You see, that doesn't, that doesn't make, that does not make heaven sound very fun. That, that makes eternity sound less joyful, not more joyful. It makes it sound less beautiful, not more beautiful. It makes it sound less loving and not more Loving, But look again at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, they are in error because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Let's talk about each of those for just a minute. When Jesus says, you don't know the power of God, he is saying, friends, if you think that eternity is going to be any less joyful, any less rapturous, any less intense in the nature of love, in the nature of love, then you have no idea of the future that awaits you. 
If you think that heaven means a lesser degree of oneness and of being known and of having a sense of belonging, all these things that marriage was intended to give to us, Jesus is saying that you don't know the power of God and you don't know the scriptures. See, what is the Bible? Some of you would say, well, the Bible, oh, I know what the Bible is. It is, it's God's rule book. It's a book of rules to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Or maybe you'd say, well, you know, no, the Bible is actually a book of examples. It is filled with people that we are to emulate and follow. But what if I told you that the Bible is not primarily a book of rules and it is not primarily a book of examples, but it is primarily a love story. It is about a brave prince who leaves his throne and his kingdom and everything that he ever has ever had in order to rescue the ones that he loves. That is the story of the Bible. See, it's, it's so interesting to me that Jesus says in this passage, there's no marriage in heaven. Because the Bible talks so much about marriage. And it talks about what a good thing marriage is. You know, the very first thing God does in the Bible is he puts two married people in a garden. And over and over and over again throughout the Bible, it talks about how good marriage is. In fact, there's this one book in the Old Testament that is all about the sex life between two married people. And you're like, how about a sermon on that? It's another day. That's not where we're at today. You know, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. He turns water into wine to keep the wedding party going. Why would Jesus say there is no marriage in heaven when over and over and over again the Bible talks, what, talks about what a good thing marriage is, how God has created it? And here's something else. How come Jesus never got married? I mean, he had to be pretty desirable. The dude was walking around doing some pretty killer stuff. Like, there had to be some people lining up, you know? Like, his dating app had to be blowing up. Like, who doesn't want to date with Jesus? And yet he never married. He was single. Why, why would Jesus... Marriage is good. God made it. So why would... God, who'd come to the earth, not get married. And here's the answer of the Christian gospel. It's because he was saving himself for us. In Revelation chapter 21, when John gets this vision of heaven, he says that he sees a wedding. And there is this bride that is beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, the husband is God. Do you know who the bride is? It's us. This is how the Bible ends. It ends in the culmination of this great love story. Christianity says that there is this beautiful eternity that awaits you where you will know and experience the love that you were built for. 
And you see, every single person in this room, we need to hear this this morning. Some of us in this room, we are, we are in relatively good marriages. And the temptation is to think that that marriage is ultimate. That marriage is good. But that marriage is not ultimate. Others of, in this, of, the, others of us in this room, we find ourselves feeling stuck in very hard marriages. It's been hard from the beginning. And we're just trying to keep it together and we are, we're actually beginning to realize that the marriage we'd always wanted, we will never have. There are people in this room who long to be married but aren't. And some of you have walked away from potential marriages because you felt like it was not the person that God had for you. There are people in this room who feel called to a life of celibacy as a sign of faithfulness to God. There are people in this room who have experienced deep betrayal in marriage. Your heart is broken. And there are people in this room who have buried spouses. What does Christianity have to say to all of us? Does it say that the love you long for will never come? You'll never have it? No. It says a day is coming. A day is coming where the arms that you really desire, you will have. And the embrace that you really desire, you will have. And the kiss that you really desire, you will have. Jesus Christ offers us the most unimaginably beautiful picture of eternity because he says, in the end, friend, you will miss out on nothing. The greatest love, the greatest marriage in this world will pale in comparison to the marriage that awaits you. And this table points us to that day. It points us to the day when we will sit at table with King Jesus, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we will know God, not just as our King, but He will be. And we will know Him not just as our loving Father, as He will be, but we will know Him as a spouse. That is what this table points us to, and it tells us of the lengths to which God was willing to go to make that possible. That the sign of his love for you and me was not a diamond ring. But it was a wooden cross where Jesus loved us and gave himself for us so that he might have us and so that we might have him forever. It is the greatest love story ever told. And it is the greatest future that you could ever imagine. And it is offered to you this morning. If you want it, you can have it. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we need 
We need your help to believe these things this morning. If we're honest with ourselves, and if we know ourselves at all, it is difficult to believe that you would love us like this, that you would want this kind of relationship with us, and yet you do. And you have made a way for us to know this love, not because of anything that we have ever done or could ever do, but because of everything that Christ has done for us. Would you fill us with your love this morning as we eat and drink together in Christ's name? Amen. In just a moment, we'll come forward for communion, and we start with the front rows, and we work our way to the back. We come forward using the center aisle, so if you're one of these side sections, you can just follow the row and the aisle across from you. As you come down to the front, there'll be a station to your left and a station to your right. Um, if you're in the balcony, you can also just come downstairs to receive communion as well. As you come to the first tray, you'll find bread in the first tray. If you need a gluten-free option, that's on each of the white tables up front for you. In the second tray, you'll find red wine located in the center of the tray. And if you're here this morning and you need a non-alcoholic option, there's clear grape juice located in the outer ring of each of those trays. And if you forget which is which, just ask the person serving you. They'll be happy to tell you uh, which of those is the grape juice. Once you receive the bread and the cup, you can return to your seats using the outside aisle Go ahead and take your seats, but hold on to the bread and cup as we are going to eat and drink together to signify that we are one family in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you are in this room and you have all sorts of questions about these things, we are so glad that you are here. This is a safe place to not believe. This is not a place where you have to pretend to believe something that you don't. Uh, so if to eat this bread and drink this cup is to say, I do believe these things. If that's not where you are this morning, let me encourage you to not do something that's not reflective of where you are in your own spiritual journey. Simply stay in your seats as others get up around you and come forward. There's prayers printed for you in the back of your worship guide. Use this time to consider the things that you've heard this morning. But if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, friends, God invites you to this table. And he has made a way for you to come. And his affections for you, they run wild. They are the perfect love of a perfect spouse who has made a perfect sacrifice. And so come this morning. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.